3: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. In the late 1980s, there were more than 200 lesbian bars in the US. San Francisco might have had 10 places for women to find community and love, including by my own time, the legendary Lexington Club. But by the early 2020s, that number had dwindled to just a few dozen nationally, despite an increasing number of people identifying as queer. That led writer Krista Burton on an epic quest to track down the remaining lesbian bars in this country to understand why they've been disappearing. She joins us along with local experts on the queer bar and party scene. What do these lesbian and broadly queer spaces mean to San Franciscans and the whole Bay Area? That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. A couple weeks ago, our producer Caroline Smith and I made some calls on a couple of the lesbian bars of San Francisco. In Bernal Heights, we visited the city's oldest operating lesbian bar, Wildside West. As evening fell, we sat in the beautiful garden, illuminated by twinkling lights, hearing from the regulars who'd been going there some dang near daily for decades. One, Timotha, a local legend who goes by one name, like a Brazilian soccer star, had been a fixture at the bar since the 1960s at jolene's and the mission we yelled above heavy beats asking a slightly more hesitant crowd to speak with us outside as traffic rumbled by we interviewed old lesbians young lesbians trans and cis lesbians lesbians who gave the word lesbian when asked for their pronouns all about why they think there are so few lesbian bars and places for queer women left here in the bay and nationwide they had thoughts As a cis hetero man, let me tell you, this was one of the best reporting experiences I've ever had. We're so grateful to everyone who shared their memories and opinions with us. Caroline edited their responses into this fascinating sample. Let's listen.
4: I am talking to you
5: in the oldest lesbian bar in San Francisco, and I'm the oldest lesbian in it.
2: Yeah, coming to San Francisco and finding Wildside are kind of synonymous in my head because it was the same summer, you know, that I had just moved here. And so taking in everything that was new about San Francisco um, and finding the community at this place at Wildside was great, you know, but they're all kind of tied up in my mind.
6: Like Mother Bar is really nice because not only do they have just a really sweet vibe, it's a big place. They have mocktails, they have cocktails and really good prices. I mean, it's decent, like... I like that it's priced because we're still women, so we still make a percentage less than gay men. And the Castro just isn't for us. Like, there's there's no more parties like there was, you know, back in the 10s, the 2010s. So it's just very different there for us.
2: I wanted to go to um, Jolene's. I had to, like, check for a second, because I'm like, wait, what if I get the name wrong? That would be so embarrassing.
6: Oh, we would go to Lexington every night. It was like, cheers, but for lesbians. Like, it was the best place in the world. Like, it just made you feel like home. I think it's super important to just like have a space where you can go and just feel like really welcome and just like as you fit in there's like you don't need to explain yourself for being there or yeah you just like feel like you're a part of the community like everyone's kind of like on the same level as you somehow. I think just hanging out with all women just you can get drunk you can feel crazy and you don't feel unsafe besides like just little infighting cuz you dated this girl and that girl dated <laughs> this girl that's like the the most dangerous part it's just everybody's dated everybody that's probably the only <laughs> dangerous part about going to a lesbian bar ideally everyone would have like multiple spaces to like go with what
2: um, they feel most connected with as opposed to just like one you know queer space and try to find people and stuff
6: for other people besides gay and lesbian and trans like there's so many other spaces for people to go to and we only get like one or two like pretty exclusive spaces where I can feel like I can let my guard down and so sometimes I think I get a little like a little maybe uh, tense when I see straight people or other people walking in that I'm like oh like this is I hate being that way but it's like it's hard not to be a little bit like um, you know I don't want to say grabby, but like where I just, I kind of, it's mine, you know, and it, if there is like straight women and you go up and you hit on them and they're like, oh, sorry, no, that's not for me. I'm, and I'm like, oh, man, like I, I don't want to feel uncomfortable or I have to like choose my words.
7: When I first got here, there were 10 or 11 seven-day-a-week lesbian bars, but that did change and one by one by one drifted, but almost every neighborhood in this city had them.
3: That was a collection of reflections on the city's lesbian bars that producer Caroline Smith and I gathered at Wildside West and at Jolene's. If you want to share a memory or reflection on one of our region's lesbian bars, give us a call. The number is 866 733 6786. That's 866 733 6786, or send us a note at forum at kqed.org. Here to help us remember the lesbian bars we've lost, celebrate the ones we've got, and share why these spaces are so important, we're joined first by Krista Burton, who's the author of Moby Dyke, an obsessive quest to track down the last remaining lesbian bars in America and creator of the popular blog, Effing Dykes. Welcome, Krista.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
3: So why don't you tell us how you ended up uh, writing this book? Like, why did you want to go on this quest?
2: Ugh. Okay. Um, it it actually started with the Lexington Club closing in 2015. Mm. Uh, when that bar closed, it it hit me like a punch in the gut. And I spent the next couple of years just really complaining about that to anybody who would listen, complaining about the fact that so many bars I was starting to really notice were closing. Um, and then fast forward about five years, a whole bunch of Media attention had surrounded all the bars closing. There were all these articles coming out saying, like, there's only 28 left. There's only 25 left. And it was getting a lot of attention and um, a book that idea that I had had a couple years ago. um, It came to fruition again. I got to do a book deal um, where I went and tried to figure out why they were all closing.
3: Why was the Lexington so important to you?
2: Oh, because. okay. Um, Okay, so I am 40. I've been going out and uh, in a gay way for like about 20 years. And um, I spent a lot, I spent my my formative years in lesbian bars, first of all. And second of all, um, I was dating somebody who lived in the Bay Area and we would, I would visit quite often and we would go to the Lexington bar pretty much every time. And it was the first lesbian bar I had ever been in. And I, I literally could not believe it when I walked in. <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, you have um, a, a little pay-in to the Lex in your book. Do you want to just read that bit to us?
2: Oh, sure. Okay. On Friday and Saturday nights, the Lexington <laughs> Club was always mobbed. There would be a large crowd of queers standing outside, smoking, making out against the walls in the dark, fishing their IDs out of their back pockets, fighting under the streetlights, either fully yelling or in that tense, whispery way that dykes and relationships fight when they're out with their friends, and one of them has just done something that needs to be talked about outside. You know, your basic talking, lacking, laughing, loving, breathing, fighting, f- crying, drinking situation going on. Inside the Lex, there wouldn't be space to move. The crush surrounding the bar was hopeless, three layers of people thick before you could come anywhere near the bartenders who were unfairly cute and tattooed and would take your drink order with the indifferent expressions of the chronically hot and hit on.
3: So that was Krista Burton reading just a slice of Moby Dyke, um, her new book. So the Lex sounds like an extremely fun place to be a, a young lesbian. Um, Why are places like this not succeeding financially or at least as, you know, continuing to be operated?
2: That is it's it's such a hard question because there are so many answers. I I I wrote the book hoping to find like one or two very single answers like clear. This is why the bars are not staying open. And instead, I came away with 10, 15, Mm. all kind of cross connecting answers to that question. some of them are incredibly basic um one of them is of course lesbians and queer people don't make as much as cis gay men and another one uh, a huge one was gentrification um Mm -hmm. if you don't own your building that the bar is in your landlord can just decide that condos would look super cute where your Mm -hmm. space is even if you've been there for like 20 years um and then lots of smaller reasons Uh, i got a lot of Owners telling me it, they thought maybe it was dating apps uh, mm. were part of it were part of the issue, and then other stranger issue like stranger reasons that I hadn't thought of before, like a lack of succession planning. Um, lots of stuff. There were yeah. so many reasons.
3: You know, you also went to Wildside West um, as we did. What was your experience of, of Wildside West in Bernal Heights?
2: Oh, what a wonderful bar! I, I had know. never been there before. <laughs> yeah. And um, I, I loved it. I was very shocked at the, uh, the garden in the back. It's so beautiful. And so it just kind of swallows you up whole. It was full of people. And when you first walk down the steps, you don't really have a concept of that. It seems like, oh, here I am in this kind of leafy, peaceful garden. But then around every nook and corner, there's another group of people and everybody's just kind of tucked away and hidden. It's wonderful.
3: Yeah. I love that you connected that to kind of a core principle of San Francisco, too, that it does it contains these surprises. It really does. Yeah. Um, you know, a place like Wild Side West that has been able to, you know, maintain does seem like it kind of develops its own culture, too. Right. Did you find that at the different lesbian bars across the country that you know each one has a very like specific set of cast of characters and ways of being?
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, I would say that across the board, every single one has a very solid core of regulars. Um, people who came pretty much, if not daily, then at least several times a week. And then it just, yeah, they they all seem to have specific nights that a very specific set of people will be there.
3: Yeah, yeah. And like when you... Um... Spent time like how would you compare Wildside West to the other places that you that you went to
2: in San Francisco or no across like the across
3: country? the country yeah like situated like kind of within the the national scene of lesbian bars.
2: Sure, um I would say that a regular at Wildside West uh, said that she didn't think necessarily that Wildside West was so much a lesbian bar as it was a neighborhood bar and. Mm. I did hear that a lot from a lot of the bars that I went to that people don't think of it as much as a lesbian bar as they do an everyone bar. And Wild Side West felt like a neighborhood bar. It felt like a bar that people who lived down the street were wandering into. That was in the inside, but the garden felt real gay. It felt like a gay bar in the garden. So yeah, I think. I think mm-hmm. it w- i think it's similar uh across the uh, across the country i feel like a lot of the bars felt very very particular to what they were and mm-hmm. yeah
3: yeah uh we're gonna hear some uh music during this show um this is uh, dyke bars never last by sapphic lasers we're joined by krista burton author of moby dyke an obsessive quest to track down the last remaining lesbian bars in america we are talking about the history and future of lesbian bars in the bay area and nationwide I'd love to hear from you if you want to share a memory or a reflection one of our region's lesbian bars give us a call numbers 6786 or send us a note forum at kqed.org i'm alexis madrigal stay tuned now that we're older we say dyke bars now Welcome back to Forum, I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about lesbian bars, their history here in the Bay Area and nationwide. Why there's so few and the challenges they faced in trying to keep their doors open. We're joined by Krista Burton, author of Moby Dyke, an obsessive quest to track down the last remaining lesbian bars in America. And we want to add a couple other voices. Alex Yu in, it's a Bay Area drag king creator of the dance party, unleash for women over 40 and co-founder of the pride parade counterpoint known as the people's March. Welcome Alex.
8: Hello. Thank you.
3: Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us. We're also joined by Carol Hill, one of the stewards of El Rio's queer party mango, which runs once a month. Thanks Carol for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Alex, I thought maybe you could start us off reflecting on what you think we've lost locally and what you think remains.
8: Yeah, I just wanted to first say, you know, thank you for having me on the show. I wanted to tell the audience that I identify as they, them and Mm non-binary. And for those who I'm not visible to, I'm African descent. My skin is brown. My hair is in the style of ancestral dreads. And I'm wearing a collared shirt with a matching hat. And I just think that this is a really important uh, topic for our survival. And thank you, Crystal, for doing the book and to honor those in the past and present that have taken the risks, mm. in, in, especially in these times, to give us a livelihood. Um, what I remember um, is a lot. It I've been in, in the city for a long time. And one of the things that I think is really important for us to know and to really stay on point with is that, unless we have people who are taking the risks like Carol and others, mm. um, we will le- lose our livelihood in this city. Mm. Because, you know, as Krista was saying, in the early 10s, even before that, in our 70s and our 80s, we, we were live. We had 13 or so um, bars uh, that identified as lesbian bars and I may not be answering your question, but I think it's really important for people to know that the cafes and restaurants and the bars that we had were live and vibrant and a place of safe place for us to go to. And like Chris was saying earlier, there's a different vibe for each one of them. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, like if you felt that you wanted to be bougie and sit in front of a fireplace, there was the cafe. And if you wanted to get dressed up in your fine suit uh, you went to club continental,
9: mm-hmm. or if you
8: wanted to, dance you went to Amelia's and you dance to Holler, Page Codell. And if you wanted a drink, you want the Peg's Place or you want the Mods. If you wanted live music, I heard um uh what were they called? Uh, I can't remember their names right now, but I heard them for the first time there and they went on to be popular and famous. But yeah. so this was the Artemis Club, um, which was a segregated club didn't allow men in it. <laughs> and and if you wanted to Shoot some pool. You want the Scots place. And that's where I lost my die card because I suck at pool.
3: (laughs) (laughs) uh, (laughs) Alex, I I just had a a question. I mean, for someone with your particular identity, identifying as non-binary, you know, um, African descent, I mean, how were these places specifically important to your kind of coming into your own uh, owning your identity?
8: Well, they were super important because they, they they identified a safe place for me to love who I wanted to love. Mm. And being African descent, they weren't segregated, right? I I Unfortunately, the first time I experienced segregation in bars was in San Francisco. Mm. And it wasn't so much about race. It was about gender. Mm. And especially in the gay men's clubs. If we tried to go in, they would ask for two IDs. And if you didn't have them, they turned you away. And then if you got smart or hip to their... To their uh, rules, you brought two IDs with you and then they looked down at your shoes and if it was a hot day and you had sandals on, they wouldn't let you in because they said their insurance policies wouldn't wouldn't allow you to get a broken toe because their men wore big boots.
3: Hmm.
8: And and we had segregation right down the middle of 18th Street in that one side of the bar, one side of the street was African descent and Latinx and the other side was Asian and white. Hmm.
6: Hmm.
8: And so that was the first time ever I experienced that. And I came from Philadelphia area. Yeah. Yeah. So and New York, and so I was really shocked by it all.
3: I appreciate and so- you bringing up the the complexities of, in, inside, you know, the communities. I um I want to bring in uh, another uh, reflection. Uh, Janelle in Oakland, welcome to the show.
5: Hi, um, I just want to say thanks for covering this. I fully intend to get the book Moby Dyke. That's a great title.
3: <laughs>
4: um,
5: I want to say that. I, uh, I did come of age in the 80s and 90s uh, in uh, Oakland and San Francisco, and it was a gloriously fun and amazing time trying to skirt in and out of clubs. By the time I was there, there was a, a bit less segregation and, a, and some fewer lesbian-specific bars, but they were so important. The Cafe, Pedro Dell's Club Q, the Lex, all of those. But there was one spot called the Whiptail Lizard Lounge, That was only there for like a moment, and I I tried so hard to get there. I got there once. The Whiptail Lizard lounge was called so because the Whiptail Lizard changes its gender Mm -hmm. if there is a need for the different, or changes its sex if there's a need in order to propagate the species or whatever, but it was a dike only space, and it was controversial because of that, and it was literally in a garage, (laughs) and it was just, that memory is just so precious. To me. Yeah. But I also have a theory about why the bars are less, there are fewer lesbian bars now than before, and it has to do with cultural stuff and physiological mm-hmm. stuff. Like, sometimes estrogen makes people want to have babies, and the time, the window that you can make babies is just a little bit more discreet mm-hmm. than, than for men. And if you are joining two lesbian heads of households, that's two female or women's incomes. And that's just always been, and today remains substantially less than the income of two male heads of households. And so many times lesbians just didn't have the same amount of money to spend at bars mm. and bars are businesses, no matter who they serve, they have to sort of cater to who, to, who buys the drinks. Right. And so I don't blame anyone for that. It's just a fact, you know, now we can all have families and it's a lot more complicated in some ways and, and simpler in some ways, but I think there were cultural, economic reasons um, why th- there were fewer women's bars so quickly yeah. uh, comparatively. Hey, thank you so... That's so that's
3: just a thought. Yeah, Janelle, thank you so much. The Whiptail Lizard Lounge. That's a, just a, a great name <laughs> for a spot. I, um, you know, Krista, I, I did want to ask you about this. like some Because it seems like a lot of um, Janelle's perspective explanations would have also been true, you know, in the 1970s and the 1980s when there were more um, you know, lesbian bar. So, is it just that like the cost of living in cities has gone up? Like, what are the other factors that have kind of taken maybe the thing that's been true for a long time and changed the position of so many bars over the last few decades? I
2: don't, there's just so many reasons. I obviously the cost of living has gone way up. Um, I heard from people jokingly that. Uh, I heard from owners jokingly, but none of them would go on the record uh, saying that sometimes uh, lesbians have there's a stereotype that we will get together and just vanish (laughs) and uh, just uh, we're at our houses for the next like three months uh, establishing our our relationship. And like mm, it's funny because there's like a grain of truth in that. But there's also it's not fully the reason I know lots of queer people who are going out constantly partnered or not. Um, one thing I heard that I had never considered was, um, several owners were talking to me about the, just the grind of owning a business like a bar. You, I talked to several owners who are there constantly, basically live at the bar. Some of them have like a little cot or a couch that they sleep on sometimes. And it can be very wearing, I think, to run a business, uh, where it's a going out type of business. I, I think maybe sometimes that lifestyle is not something that you want to maintain for years and years. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Let's um, Carol Hill, um, one of the stewards of El Rio's queer party mango. Can you talk to us about the the founding of, of mango and sort of how it's evolved over the years?
9: Sure. Uh, so uh, mango was founded by, uh, for, thank you for having me too. Uh, I'm excited to talk with you about this subject and I totally have some thoughts on, what exactly Hmm. happens because Mango has been going on for 27 years. So we have definitely seen the ebb and the flow um of you know folks coming and going and then uh you know the people who have been coming for twenty seven years straight, the people who take a 10 year break (laughs) and then come back after they have broken up or gotten divorced these days. Uh, you know we have the we have the we, it runs the gamut but anyways mango was started by Chantal Salki who uh is a Jamaican woman uh who was from DC I'm also from DC and we were very used to having uh a, a certain type of space um back in the day in the 80s especially DC was you know uh you know 75 percent black mm-hmm. and so our spaces were largely, uh, the ones that we went to in D.C. the Delta, um, Little Sisters, the Hung Jury, a lot of those places were black and uh, and queer and so and lesbian. So uh, <laughs> when we got here, um, it wasn't the same. First of all, the mm-hmm. the population in San Francisco was was totally different, mm-hmm. definitely more diverse than you know sort of where we were and uh and so we sort of felt the lack of having a space especially for women of color um in in san francisco mm-hmm. and there were clubs like club q and um alex i was trying to remember that other woman's club uh so there was page there was mariah and then the other woman
8: which remember. carol from england maybe uh, i i yeah. there was there were like yeah. three major carol clubs. From yeah, uh, what was her, her club? I forget what her club was. Yeah, me too.
9: But but there were three major, major clubs uh while we were here. But the thing about it was that uh, you know, whereas Alex didn't seem to experience that, you know, the sort of lack that I I and Chantal were experiencing, um, we did. And so uh there was, you know, the music that we wanted to hear came on at like three in the morning. Uh or you know, just it was it was just hard to find each other. Um, mm-hmm. In in the clubs because it sort of wasn't the 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 things that we were used to. So Chantal decided uh, with you know talking with a bunch of other people who sort of felt the same way. There was also colors also with chili. Mm, yeah, um, yes, yeah, colors back in the day too. So there was there was a you know we had some we had some different pockets of clubs that were going on. Uh, especially for women of color. And they're sort of on the the underground. So we first, you're lesbian, so you're already in the underground. And then we have, (laughs) you know, we're breaking up into our subgroups uh, and and not sub meaning less than the sub meaning, you know, smaller. Uh, And so it was hard to get everybody together. And Chantal's, Chantal's mindset was to bridge. So Mango came out of the tea dance tradition in DC, meaning having an afternoon club where mm. everybody could be outside and dancing and drinking, um, but also to play the music that women of color and people who who like that kind of music can get together. Um, so it was hip hop, Back before, it was, there was a bunch of people were not playing hip hop um, mm-hmm. when when we first started. But there was hip hop and then there's also Latin grooves and then also a bunch of reggae, reggaeton once reggaeton started being played. So mm-hmm. that's sort of how it came about.
3: So it's interesting, right, because these are kind of like daytime big dance parties. Alex, are, is, that's also your kind of lane in some of this nightlife. Yeah. Or I guess life.
8: Yeah. the the But I want to I want to add to what Carol was just talking about. Because there were vibes at different clubs, but there was a club called Un Pequito uh, Mas. Do you remember that, Carol? Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. And and you went from Sasa the hip hop, and it was dope.
9: Mm-hmm. And
8: so and then that went away. But um, to add to your points, uh, and then there was the Christina did Oasis. Do you remember Oasis?
9: Yeah.
8: Yeah, Christina did Oasis, and uh, but yeah, she you know, did
9: butter. There was butter. Butter, butter. butter. Yeah. That's right, butter. But all those all those clubs, those came after. After yeah. you guys. Yep, yeah, after Mango, yeah. after, after the dance. Santal yeah. made sure to solidify that T dance tradition and then That's right. it spawned so many different amazing yeah. other clubs.
8: Well, you all gave me the format for Unleash, right? Um, and any other club that i participated in, like Page's mm-hmm. Club as well, you know, like for yeah. Club Q. That went on for over thirteen years. And congratulations, Carol, for twenty-seven years. Yeah. I mean, I know I it takes a lot of work to even just do a monthly party, so I applaud you for keeping <laughs> up in the business and in the space. But yeah, so for Unleash, to answer your your question, Magical, um, it it came because it, we saw a format that was working, and and Unleash until COVID was five years old, you know, and and we had. I mean, we were pretty cute because from four to five, we had 70, 80 year olds from five to six, we would have, so we'd go down the spectrum. Oh so we'd have our 60 year olds from, uh, from, uh, sex, six to seven, we'd have a different <laughs> and then after seven and we went hog wild with all the young folks over 30. And, uh, and so we, you know, it was a dope, dope space for people to go to that didn't feel as though. They were too old to be in a younger space. Mm
3: -hmm. Um, You know, Alex, one listener has a shout out. Huge shout out to Alex from Oakland to San Francisco and all around the Bay. Alex has always been a crowd leader. You always feel the love and joy being around this beautiful soul from bars that no longer exist and events that have ceased. Alex really keeps the community together we also have a few other wow. shout outs for i know that's beautiful um we have a few other shout outs for uh places that uh have have gone ollie's in oakland on telegraph thursday nights were epic crowded and crazy in 1983 the pointer sisters jump for my love and it's raining men by the weather girls brought everyone to the dance floor uh with a grin Um, I wonder, you know, Christopher, to bring you back in, how do you see the relationship between, you know, uh, the the tea uh, dances and other kind of like daytime parties and, you know, the kind of single night kind of dances and the sort of 24-7 or at least, you know, seven day a week kind of uh, lesbian bar?
2: Uh, I think... I've been seeing, for years now, I've been seeing much earlier events becoming more and more popular. I think they're amazing. Um, and, wait, okay, ask me one more time.
3: Yeah, like, how do you see the relationship between those? Is it, like, kind of carrying on the tradition of the of lesbian bars? Is it sort of filling in the space because they've been, yeah. you know, declining?
2: Yeah, I think um, those earlier events have been, like, really gaining in popularity and have been really helping. And also those one-off nights, one-off nights and regular recurring dance parties seem to really be hugely filling in the gaps from the spaces that, we're, that are closing or that are missing. Um, now, I mean, the biggest cl- city close to me is Minneapolis and we don't have any, any lesbian bars and we do have regular dance nights and that's what everybody just flocks to. And I think mm. it's similar across the country.
3: Yeah, no, I think you're, uh, that's one of the things that we heard also in some of our reporting um, out in in San Francisco. Um, Few more uh, comments for you here. Um, Two listeners want to shout out uh, Cafe San Marcos. Cafe San Marcos, it was awesome, spent so much time laughing, drinking on the deck, danced my butt off. Fontana writes in to say, when Cafe San Marcos was sold and reopened as the cafe, we lesbians were kept back in line, overcharged, refused drinks, it was brutal and heartbreaking, this This was blamed on gay men keeping us out of the cash show. Not sure what really happened, you know, it's kind of complex histories here. Another listener writes, I just remember being so impressed with the amount of graffiti in the bathroom at the Lexington, I also remember feeling super grateful that the drink prices were reasonable. I heard there were $1 margaritas, which seems like a, I don't know about that idea. (laughs) We're talking about lesbian bars, their history here in the Bay Area and nationwide why there's so few, the challenges they faced in trying to keep their doors open. We're uh, joined by Alex in, uh, Bay Area Drag King, creator of the dance party Unleash for Women Over 40, Krista Burton, author of Moby Dyke and Obsessive Quest to Track Down the Last Remaining Lesbian Bars in America, and Carol Hill, Executive Director of the San Francisco Beacon Initiative and one of the stewards of El Rio's Queer Party Mango once a month. This is uh I Was Dancing in the Lesbian Bar by Jonathan Richmond. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned.
9: Went downtown, I was there to check the
1: scene and hang around. Well, at first bar, things were stop and stare. But in this bar, things were laissez faire. In the first bar, things were stop and stare. In this bar, things were laissez faire. And I
6: was dancing in the Lesbian Bar. Oh, oh.
3: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about lesbian bars, you know, their importance and also the challenges that they faced economically. Joined by Carol Hill, one of the stewards of El Rio's queer party, Mango, which happens once a month. Alex Ewan, a Bay Area drag king, creator of the dance party Unleash for Women Over 40, and Krista Burton, author of Moby Dyke, an obsessive quest to track down the last remaining lesbian bars in America. Let's bring in Jessica in Oakland. Welcome.
10: Hi, hey, thanks. I just, uh, uh, the two things, uh, the women's bookstores also disappeared and those, uh, they were of course called women's bookstores, but they were mostly lesbian spaces, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, um, they were wonderful places for gathering, hearing, you know, women's music and, you know, other activities. And did you um, have
3: a favorite, you know, Jessica? Very sad. Did you have a favorite?
10: Well, um, yeah, there was Mama Bears in Oakland.
3: Uh, I was hoping and, you were going to say that. <laughs> uh,
10: yeah, which was a wonderful place. And the two women who owned it were wonderful. And, you know, that's so sad. And uh, also Old Wives Tales mm. in San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah, but the other thing is, I wonder if Crystal, if uh, she searched all over the U.S., Yes, so she must have been in New York City, if she ran into anything uh, about the history of a place called Network.
5: Mm.
10: And I used to... It I used to go there on weekends when I was first coming out in the early eighties. And um seems like every time I showed up it was uh, you know, all pretty much all African American women. Um and uh it was really a wonderful, a wonderful place, great music and dancing and yeah. so forth.
3: Thank you so much, um, Jessica. Really appreciate that and really appreciate you shouting out Mama Bears, which I think was located near the White Horse on on Telegraph, right?
10: Across the street. Yeah.
3: Um. Let yeah, uh, Krista. Did you anything network in uh, New York City? No,
2: it sounds amazing. I had yeah. I have not heard anything about it.
3: Yeah, yeah. How about uh, Carol? How about you? I coming from the East Coast. Uh,
9: the question is, have uh, I heard about the uh, about network?
3: A place? Net- yeah, network. Yeah, not
9: not a one time. So but I gotta tell you though that I did work at Old Wives Tale.
8: Yes, I remember you there Carol
9: yeah <laughs> and it was I mean one of the reasons when when Alex said that this scene was alive and we were alive like the the uh, the bookstores mm-hmm. um the bearded lady right had yeah. so we had, yeah. we had uh, the uh, we had uh cafes like you know little coffee shops there was the brick house in in mm-hmm. Berkeley, right wasn't that Berkeley? Mm-hmm. Yep, brick house, right or, at uh,
8: Ashby and
9: right? um, and Shatter, so that, yeah. that was a restaurant that people went to for breakfast, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, just a general like. Oh, to mention. Remember? Do you remember Red Doors? Do you remember Red Doors on Fourteenth yep. Street? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So we had so many. We made when when San Francisco was affordable, when the mm-hmm. when Bernal Heights and the Mission were were mm-hmm. full of lesbians and you know working class families this was also a place economically mm-hmm. that uh lesbians could thrive in terms of businesses so mm-hmm. we had a lot of uh, uh, just several businesses small businesses places where people could go little galleries and whatnot mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. especially in the mission uh and some in bernal heights yeah. including wild side west like i totally went to wild side west yeah. when i got here and it is that's the thing about San Francisco for me is that in being embedded in these communities um right. they become definitely they're lesbian focused they feel lesbiany and they have all the yep. you know all the signs and whatnot up uh but also those they are uh absorbed in not a bad way so it's it's a good way the, the they 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 are part of the community and the community is part of them yeah. and so right. Uh, that that I found to be a little uh, I, I found that to be different than it was for me on the East Coast when I came to
8: the West Coast. That's right. You, you know, Alexis, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that where Unleashed takes place is the Ivory Room, and that's mm-hmm. on the border of Berkeley and Albany, and it's owned by two lesbians who took a risk six or seven years ago and stayed open during COVID and offered. Drinks outside, pa- outside on their sidewalks, set up chairs. Did did everything they could to keep the doors open for us. Literally, right. And their names are Summer and Lonnie. And I want to give you a big shout out because without you in the East Bay, we're especially down by Solano and yeah. Berkeley and the Further north. Yeah, we don't really have anything. So so uh, so thank you for taking that risk because the Ivory Room is dope. Brings in all kinds of talent, musically and um, you know, just great concerts. So Yeah. Thank you for uh,
3: no no thank you for that. Um I wanna bring in um Della here. Hey Della in San Francisco, welcome.
11: Thank you. Um thank you for the show. It's been great. And I just wanted to speak to my own personal experience. I came of age in the dike nineties in the Bay Area and frequent in all the clubs and bars. Uh, Specifically, I lived at the Lexington. And what's been touched on a lot is the economics of keeping a bar open needs a constant influx of customers. Mm -hmm. And the bar life is, I mean, there's a limited lifespan of a bar life where, um, you know, young dykes, young lesbians weren't moving into the city as much anymore because it wasn't as expensive. And then you know, I'm 52. So what happened for me is I ended up getting sober. Mm -hmm. And while I would still frequent, in fact, I actually tried to work my first steps in the dark in the Lexington. And I (laughs) really thought, oh, I'll have the same lifestyle. I just won't drink anymore. And it turns out it didn't really, you know, (laughs) other stuff became um, of interest. And so, um, yeah, like, I'll still close the bar down, but I'm not a very good customer because a Diet Coke isn't going ge- to generate revenue.
5: Yeah. But I have
11: such fond memories, and um, someone mentioned all the hot dyke uh, bartenders of the Lex, and um, while that was true, I specifically remember giving the bar just uh, bouquets of flowers on its anniversary. I had such a love affair with the bar huh. in general, and very many fond memories even as um a sober woman yeah so like, oh, thanks yeah. for sharing so that thank experience you for the yeah
3: congratulations on your on getting sober too that sounds like it was the right the right move for you um i you know it's, it's, as we talk about um these experiences and just how how much people how much this space is meant to people i i want to um bring this one first to you alex sarah tweets Not as many, just kind of as a a reason for why uh, lesbian bars have been closing down, not as many people ID as lesbians now. Isn't that part of the demise of the bars? More young people, and of course some of us elders, ID as trans and non-binary. Also, the world is safer and more accepting of dykes than back in the day. There's not the same kind of essential need now. What What do you think, Alex?
8: One of the things I want to say to you, Carol, who just called in, is continue to come and drink your Coke. Because having people in the room and other people, because lesbians don't go to any place that's not crowded. <laughs> we, just we we love staying in that womb feeling, and so therefore, when other people are around, we will peek in and go in. So keep drinking those cokes and keep keep coming because it's about the community and it's about keeping it alive for the owners. And cokes, you know, they probably try- charge you twice or three times as much, so we do get some interest from that. So <laughs> keep coming. Well, what I wanted to do is just really agree with the call with the, the caller's comment because or the, your your uh, yeah. write in comment, because, yes, we um, we have changed. The world has changed. We identify differently. And sometimes the word lesbian really holds the rest of us off, non-binary, mm-hmm. our trans siblings. You know, it's like, oh, well, that's for other. It's not for me. So we don't really use that language that much anymore. And so therefore our identity as lesbians and butches and non-binary queers are being taken away as well. And therefore there's a hard place to where we fit in. So it depends on the language and how the owners really promote their, their events. And then the other thing is, is that, you know, online dating, like uh, Krista was Mm -hmm. saying earlier, has really taken, um, you know, a toll on some of the, the bars because as we get older, do we want to go into a bar? Do we want to get more intimate with somebody that we can know and really see if that's the place that we, that's the person we can bond with? Mm-hmm. Because most of the time we were going in the bars and when, especially when we're single, um, is because we were looking for the other. Mm-hmm. Right. And then sometimes when you have a gender identity or a sexual orientation, that's not represented, then yeah, you don't feel inclusive or welcome. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to come. And then depending on the activities that's happening at the bars or whether, you know, because a lot of lesbian bars in the past also served as social justice organization mm-hmm. spots, especially when our queer brothers were sick with, with uh, AIDS. We really used our clubs as organization spots so we can help them get through this crisis. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we now we, we look at our clubs like you know, bringing it back to mango, mango, you go in, you go in dry, you come out sweaty. So, you know, what, <laughs> right. For pages club, Pedro Dale's club, same thing for Patty, Pat, you know, I want to give a big shout out to Patty Dingo, who saved the white horse and now is women owned and African descent, Japanese owned, and it is kick ass. She did some remodeling and it is awesome. So if you guys haven't tried that out and then another shout out to feel more Who was in Oakland and Mm -hmm. she opened a beautiful spot. I mean, these spots are beautiful now. And then again, a shout out to Mother because mothers, you walk into Mother's and you can be surrounded by so many good people, just like all these other places. So, you know, so to answer your questions, Alexis, it's just that things are changing and we need to really respect how people identify. And maybe the word lesbian is not as inclusive anymore. And maybe that's why we can't get the people to come. But like I was saying to Carol, as long as you come and there's a body in the room, we are going to keep our doors open. If you don't come, we can't keep our doors open because just like the people sleeping on the couch, it's real. (laughs) When you have a 24 by 7 place to keep control of and you have employees and others that you have to be concerned about, It is real.
3: You need people. Yeah. Yeah.
8: Yes. And then the one thing that I wanted to say, and I know I took up a little bit of time, but I need to really say this. If our cities are invested in seeing a livelihood for us, us taxpayers don't usually get represented, then they need to come up with some policies or something else that says, Hey, here's a pop-up that you can do. Here's a, here's a storefront that's open and the city gets involved with us or or other organizations and really give us that, that, that runway to be successful because if there's no policies or if there's nothing that's coming our way or there's no grants or anything, then yeah, people aren't going to take the risk because we're not like others were saying we don't make a lot of money compared to our gay brothers. So, you know,
3: let's um, you know, you're talking uh, kind of gesturing at the, you know, the kind of present and future of uh, of the culture here. And let's bring in Yates in San Francisco.
8: Hi.
11: um, Yeah, I just wanted to ask, you know, I'm in my 20s. It's been fabulous to hear about other spaces that used to exist, like. Uh, bookstores or breakfast spots, um, and you know, while I love a dance scene, like so much of queer nightlife or life in general happens in bars, and so I was curious to hear everybody's thoughts about what the future of Dike spaces could look like, both
2: in and outside of nightlife.
3: Mm. Yeah, such a good, uh, such a good point. You know, Chris, you want to take this one first?
2: Sure. Um, I something I really noticed as I was traveling across the country to go to all these bars was that the bars that seemed to be jam-packed and absolutely thriving, even if it was a weeknight, tended to be the most radically inclusive bars, the bars that were emphatically like, everyone is welcome, come in because it's Mm. a bar. I don't remember who said it on this call, but uh, you mentioned that at the end of the day, you're there to, to make money. And the bars that have succeeded, according to what I saw, were the ones that were as radically inclusive as possible. And I think that moving forward, it's it's gonna have to be more like that. The world has changed. And sometimes the word lesbian is a turnoff for people who are falling into the umbrella of queer but don't identify with the word lesbian. So if they feel that they are emphatically welcomed, I think they're far more likely to come. And as far as we don't need the spaces as much as we used to that is true but i think i think that the the extreme want is still there Mm -hmm. i don't know a queer person uh at all who does not want a space that specifically welcomes them to Mm go to
3: i loved your description in the book of the exact thing that you loved uh about lesbian bars you know this moment where you're holding a drink up you know trying to <laughs> scoot past people there and your description of that uh, as as just being you know surrounded by queer people on all sides it, it kind of kept emphasizing you know just wrapped inside the community inside the bar
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I longed for that during COVID. I longed for that feeling where everyone is touching you and not on purpose because you're just all so packed in and you are surrounded like group therapy by people who understand a queer experience.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted... Yeah.
8: Oh, Alexis, can I, can I quickly answer that question? Sure, I yeah. Do. Yes, do. Yeah, because, you know, even though... Um, You know, we have we have a lot of challenges. Right. So we have increasing popularity of online dating. We have gentrification. Right. We have rising costs of living in our big cities. But the one thing that we can hold in our future, because our future is uncertain. We know that is that there's some things that can be done to keep the safe spaces. And one of the important things is the existing lesbian bars that we have please or, or or bars that we have or club nights or like in carol's cases or club months patronize them donate to them volunteer your time because all of that saves a little bit of money for the club owner or the producer and then you know if we want to create lesbian bars we really need to really and, new, and start our new and new businesses we need to look at existing spaces that are going to be that can be freed up with us so we can afford them because otherwise we're not going to get the inclusivity that we can have. There's not going to be spaces that are welcoming to us anymore. You know, the socioeconomic status is
3: just
8: just, uh, above us, right? And so we really need to play this important role of supporting each other or else we will not survive.
3: I want to um, just finish off uh, this show by playing one last cut. It's Mimi Caesar. she's taught Wild Side West regular, and she's talking about the garden and its art.
7: When I first started coming here, it was 1986, and the garden was basically a cemetery for bathtubs, toilet bowls, and sinks. Because it was reappropriated art that started at, as hate. The folks up there who did not want a lesbian bar, especially up in North Beach, would pretty much show up every morning before opening and put toilet bowls and bathtubs and sinks up against the door so that they couldn't open it. And on a very, very regular basis, they would have to move all of those things in order to get the bar open. So, Pat, the original owner with Nancy, decided to reappropriate this as art and kept a lot of it and made it into a space of e- eclectic joy. <laughs> and Billy, the owner, must give her props, must, must give her props, because she has allowed for this space to really become that and truly thrive and not be... A dive but a thrive
3: <laughs> shout out to Wild Side West we've been talking about the importance of lesbian bars in San Francisco and across the country we've been joined by Krista Burton author of Moby Dyke Alex you creator of the dance party Unleash for women over 40 and Carol Hill a steward of El Rio's queer party mango thank you to Celine Grace Talamantes Eva Alma Viola Anderson Gina Cargis and her dog Hannah Catherine Butler Mimi Caesar and of course Timotha, who you heard in our first cut, for allowing us to interview them in their spaces. This hour is produced by Caroline Smith. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another Hour Ahead with Mina Kim. Funny
5: club, funny
0: club. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.